Thank you, Earl. Thank you, worship team. Good morning, Crossview. Would you please bow your heads with me as I pray one more time? Father God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And we ask now that you would begin to reorder anything in our hearts that may be misdirected or misguided away from you. We ask that you do this work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor and author and speaker Chuck Swindoll uh, wrote this. He said, after more than 50 years of pastoral ministry and counting, two problems continue to challenge and cause me at times to question my confidence in the gospel. The two things are the moral pagan and the immoral Christian. So what he's saying is there's two things that make me scratch my head when I look at Christianity. One is how people who say they are not Christians do Christian things and surprise him. And how people who say they are Christians don't follow God and do things that are immoral. So he says the moral pagan and the immoral Christian. That's what he means by that. The first one, the moral pagan, I admit, doesn't try my theology all that much. It does make sense to me that humanity, though lost, continues to bear God's image they were created in. So I should not be surprised to see glimmers of God's glory peeking through the crusted layers of sin clinging to a non-believing person. Christians, on the other hand, frequently tip my confidence in the gospel out of balance. And I need help. More than once I put confidence in someone I thought to be a rock-solid believer in Jesus Christ, only to discover later that it was all just an act. And frankly, I find that churches are some of their favorite places to hide out in. These people say the right things, they quote the Bible expertly, they lead others effectively, some even preach and teach with conviction. But beneath this impressive Christian veneer, there's nothing. Just an empty shell. Glittering examples of hypocrisy. Morally hollow moralists. Living monuments to the attractiveness of sin, its deceptive ways, and deadly consequences. Are they truly Christian people simply struggling to outgrow their sinful depravity? Or are they misguided imposters hiding among the truly faithful? I don't know the answer to that question. Long ago, I gave up trying to sort it out. I must remain a pastor to all who say they're a Christian and leave the rest to God. But those moral train wrecks would, enough, would be enough to send me sulking into retirement were it not for the precious few that return to Christ, broken, humble, utterly empty of pride, finally at peace with their need for their Savior. Thank God I'm not God, because I would have lost my patience. And in such impatient moments, I call to mind one of the great Psalms of grace. In it I read, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins and what we deserve, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. 
For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is to the west, so far he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our fame. He is mindful that we are but dust. When I begin to question or lose my confidence in the gospel because of the unpredictable nature of humanity, I do my best to remember that the remedy for that is obvious, or at least it should be. I must turn my eyes from the horizontal, horizontal, from looking at humanity, and I must gaze vertically into the rock-solid faithfulness of my sovereign God, for whom there is no surprises, who knows all, and who assures me at such times that every single thing is under his control. What a wonderful reassurance. Do you need reassurance today? Are you going through something that makes you question and wonder, perhaps even doubt? Paul's audience in the church in Rome at this point needed some reassurance. He just finished in the chapter before saying that the Jewish people who were his chosen people would not be declared righteous and obtain eternal life unless they stop trying to obtain it in their own strength. To Paul's listeners, this would be shocking. The Jewish people are God's chosen people. He chose them. He made a covenant with them. He made a promise with them. The idea that God's chosen people who God promised and covenanted to be with would reject God and doom themselves to eternal punishment simply blew them away. How could God let that happen? They began to question. They needed some reassurance of God's character. God made a covenant with the Jewish people, so if they could end up in hell separated from him, does that mean God just tore up the covenant and threw it away? And his audience is now questioning him, saying, and Paul, this is important because you're saying there's a new covenant coming. So the old covenant was God promised his people Israel that he'd be with them. He gave them the law, and they worked out their salvation by following the law and the Torah of the Old Testament. And now Jesus comes on the scene. He comes through a Jewish lineage, and Jesus says, but there's a new way. Instead of relating to God by following the law and Torah, you now relate to God by following me, by being in relationship with me. And so they're wondering if God seemingly forgot the people of Israel and tore up that covenant. You, Paul, now are talking about a new covenant. How do we know God's not going to tear that one up as well? So Paul senses this tension he anticipates this question. So let's look at what he does. Let's open our Bibles together to Romans chapter 11. If you're using an electronic version, I'll be reading from the NIV. If you're going to use the Bible here in our worship center, center it's on page 919. Paul assures us pretty much in this whole letter that those who are following Jesus, those who place their trust in him, 
will be saved and they'll be part of this everlasting kingdom that when Jesus comes back to earth, they will be with him. Nothing is going to change that. But as an apostle, he has to address the terrible suggestion that God would forget his promises he made years ago. His promises he made to his people Israel thousands of years ago. And Paul emphatically says, God did not reject his people. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. We see the question and the answer. I ask then, this is Paul, knowing his audience well, knowing what they're thinking, reading the question that's in their minds. Did God reject his people? By no means. Did God reject his people? Paul answers that with a big fat no. God did not reject his people. Then he goes on and takes this whole chapter, chapter 11, to answer that question he poses in that first verse. Romans chapter 11 is a hard chapter of the Bible. It's hard to understand what's going on. And so I'm going to do my best to kind of bring about what's happening here so you can see it. But not only is it hard to understand, once you understand it, the message of it can be difficult as well. So Paul, after hearing or putting, posing this question that he knows his audience is struggling with, throughout this chapter he gives them three answers to prove that God has not rejected his people. And in the next three weeks, today, in the next two weeks to come, we're going to look at each of these answers. So the first one we see is right here in Romans 11, 1 to 10. And the question that is posed is, God, did God reject his people, Israel? And Paul says no, and his proof for that is that God is alive in a few. God is moving in some of the people of Israel. We see him moving in their lives. If God rejected them, we wouldn't see that, is basically what he's saying. He takes the first 10 verses and says, if God rejected the Jewish people, we would not see anybody who's Jewish following God. And in this moment in time, there were some people who were raised Jewish and then gave their life to Jesus and began to follow him. God is alive in them. Even if there are few, they were still there. So the answer is no. They were not rejected by God. Then Paul goes on to give some examples. And the first example he gives is his very own self. Look at verse chapter uh, Chapter 11, verse 1 again. I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. And now he points to himself. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. He's saying, look at my life. I was raised Jewish and I was a Pharisee. I was the top of the class in terms of Jewish people. And I'm following God. So God has not rejected the Jewish people. Paul's own conversion is an encouraging example to them. Paul's story is unbelievable. He's an, it's incredible. Paul was this harsh, devout Jewish people who hated the way of Jesus. He hated the fact that when Jesus came on the scene, all of a sudden he shifted and said, no longer follow Torah to relate to God, follow me and create this whole new thing called Christianity. Paul couldn't stand that. He pushed against it to the point that he took the lives of several Christians he destroyed several churches. He tried to put a stop to this teaching. And then God, through his sovereign power, hunted Paul down, conquered his heart, and Paul surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. You can read about it in Acts chapter 7, 8, and 9 if you're interested. 
Paul's story is incredible. Paul had this, he was a hardened religious man, guilty of defaming Jesus and taking the lives of his followers, and he came to know Christ. This tells us there's hope for everyone. There's hope for everyone. Did God reject Paul? No. Does God reject his people? No. By the authority of the word of God, no one is beyond the grace of God. Isn't that good news? And people like Paul are a living demonstration that God has never done with us until he comes back another time. When Jesus comes again. God is not done. If you have a humble heart, if you have a heart that's quick to repent and come to Jesus, no matter what you have done, no matter where you have been, you can have a new life. And if you're here today saying, you have no idea what my life is like, all I have to do is point to the Apostle Paul. Because his life would be what we would call in our human standards the worst of the worst, the total opposite of what God desired. But Paul's life also shows us that if you turn from your ways and turn to God, if you trust that Jesus is your Savior and that he did on, what he did on the cross applies to you, that he paid for your sin, and you say, I'm going to follow you all my days and make you Lord of my life, God will enter your life, forgive you, accept you, and give you a new life. He will not reject any heart that's turned towards him. There was a great missionary in Christian history named Adoniram Judson. He was a missionary to Burma. He translated the whole Bible into the Burmese language. There's many, many Christians in Burma who have come to know God and come to know Jesus because of the work of Adoniram Judson. But before Adoniram Judson became the pioneer of the American foreign missions, he was a cold-hearted rebel by his own words. He finished at the top of his college class. He was raised by a single parent, his father, and he headed to New York City to seek fame and fortune as an actor and writer. He had renounced his father's belief. He turned his back on the Christian faith. He did not believe in a personal God his education and the environment of college taught him that those are such primitive, antiquated notions. Prayer, of course, was meaningless to him. But by age 20, Adoniram Judson didn't feel right about his life. He felt this angst. He didn't know what was true. He was disillusioned. And for some reason, he decided to head home back to Plymouth, Massachusetts from New York City. And he stopped for a night at a wayside inn. Adoniram had trouble sleeping that night because the man in the next room next to him was critically ill and he was moaning and groaning in pain all night long. Obviously his neighbor in the next room was dying. In the darkness of his room, Adoniram thought of the possibility of his own death and whether or not he was really prepared for it. And he had this angst, is what my father taught me right? Or is what I learned at college about how the Christian faith is just a sham, is that right? At times during the long hours of that night in that inn, he thought about returning to the Christian beliefs of his father. But then he imagined what he learned at college 
and what his college friend Jacob Ames would teach him about the Christian life and what the doctrines that his dad instilled in him. Jacob Ains said that, that that's all garbage. It, it doesn't matter. It's antiquated. It should be forgotten. There's a better way. And so in his mind, as he hears this person in the room groaning, he's in angst going back and forth, and he waited for the morning to come so the terrors of the night would be forgotten. Early the next morning, Adonai Judson went to the innkeeper, and he said, that poor old man in the room next door, how is he? And the innkeeper said, he passed away early this morning. However, said the innkeeper, he wasn't that old at all. He was a very young man about your age. And for some reason, Adonai Judson asked, what was his name? And it was rather a stupid question because Adonai was traveling home and he didn't know anybody in the area in this section of the country where he was staying. The innkeeper replied, his name was Jacob Ames. It was Adonai Judson's friend from college. There was no mistaking the name or identity. It was the young college friend whose religious skepticism had pulled and turned Adonai Judson away from the religious upbringing of his father. Dazed and shocked, he returned to Massachusetts and to his father. Echoing through his mind was one word over and over, and it was the word lost. But it took three months of intellectual struggle and seeking out the Bible before, in his own words, he made a solemn decision to dedicate himself to the living God. God still moves. God brings hearts to him. He has from Old Testament times to New Testament times to church history to today. But Paul gives another example. Not just himself, but all of a sudden we see that he gives another example. And it's kind of like, you know, when you're watching a movie and all of a sudden there's a flashback. Paul's doing a flashback here. The second example he gives is this prophet from the Old Testament named Elijah. Look at verse 2. That God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God, the God of Israel. Paul goes to the Old Testament, to the book of 1 Kings. And if you were around Crossview this summer, if you were here in July, uh, Dr. Eric Tully, who's a professor at our seminary in Trinity, gave a sermon on that whole story. If you're interested in it, you can go back to our website and check it out. Uh, it's in 1 Kings chapter 18, 16 to 40. And I'm going to give you just a brief summary of the story. I'm going to tell you the flashback. Now, Paul didn't have to go into all the details of the story because the people he was talking to, when the minute Paul said Elijah, they know exactly this story. It would come to their minds because it's such a powerful story. It's one of my most favorite stories in the Bible. So here's the setting of the story. Many of the people of Israel, the Jewish people, were following God. And all of a sudden they turned away from God. And they turned to follow a false god named Baal. They turned from God and began to follow a false god named Baal. And they were turning in droves. Many people were turning and rejecting God and following Baal. Because there was a king of Israel at the time named Ahab. Who turned himself. He no longer wanted to follow God. So the, the nation of Israel has a king 
And that king wants to turn away from everything they are and follow this false god, Baal. And people are going in droves. It's so interesting when you look at it, how it's likened to what we have today. People are saying the Christian faith is antiquated. There's a better way. Generations past followed that nonsense. This way's more free. That's too extreme. And so the people were buying this, and they were going over in droves. Ahab wanted to abandon the ways of God and lead the people of God away from God and follow this pagan god, Baal. So Elijah, exhorted by God, says, we're going to put together somewhat of a match. So he told Ahab, by the way, Ahab couldn't stand Elijah. He called him the troubler of Israel. And the reason he called him that is because when Elijah would teach the people the truth, it caused conviction and guilt. And they would put them in angst and it caused trouble. And he, so Ahab just called him the troubler of Israel. So Isaiah, Elijah says, we're going to have this match. So he told Ahab, get 450 prophets of Baal, meet me at Mount Carmel, bring everything for a sacrifice. Let's gather as many of the people of Israel around as we can. And so they did. They went to this place called Mount Carmel. They were all there. The people of Israel were there. And Elijah said to the people of Israel, if God is God, follow God. If Baal is God, follow Baal. And now we're going to have a contest to determine which is God and which is not. And the people stood silent. So the plan was they're going to do a sacrifice, which this culture would totally know of. It was part of ingrained in them. And this particular sacrifice, you take wood, you put it on there, then you would uh, butcher a bowl, you'd put that on there, and then you'd set it on fire and burn the whole thing in worship to God. And Elijah says, here's what we're going to do. We'll start with Baal. Put the wood on, put the bowl on, but don't light the fire. We're going to ask Baal to light the fire. And then with me, we'll do the same thing. We'll put wood on, then we'll put the bowl on, but I'm not going to light the fire. I'm going to ask God to light the fire. And let's see what happens. I'm going to read you the rest of the story from 1 Kings 18, 26 to 40. So they took the bowl, this is the prophets of Baal, and they prepared it. Then all the prophets began to call on the name of Baal to light the offering from morning to noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they began to dance around the altar they made. Now this is pretty amazing. This tells you what kind of crazy guy Elijah is. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them, made fun of them. He said, why don't you shout louder? Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought, or maybe he's busy, or maybe he's out traveling somewhere. Maybe he's sleeping and you need to wake him up. So they go, okay, and they shouted louder, and so they're shouting louder to Baal. And they begin to slash themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic shouting and prophesying until the time of evening sacrifice, but there was no response from Baal. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people gathered, if this isn't God's heart, I don't know what is. 
People left God, they followed Baal. Now they're standing here in this midst. And Elijah says to all the people, come here to me. Invitation. Come to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which has been torn down, this place where they do these sacrifices. And he took 12 stones, one from each of the tribes descended from Jacob, the God's people, to whom the word of the Lord came. And he said, your name shall be Israel. He was reminding them of their true identity. You are the people of God. Why are you messing with him? He will not deliver. Baal will not deliver. God is your identity. Your identity is the fact that that you are his child. Reestablishing their identity. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a large trench around it, enough to hold a whole bunch of seed. He arranged the wood, he cut the bowl, laid it on the wood... And then he said to them, before I ask God to light this, here's what I want you to do. Fill four large jars of water and pour it all over the offering. And they did. Then he said, do it again. So they filled four large jars of water, dumped it on his offering again. He said, do it a third time. And they did. They dumped the water the third time. The water ran down the altar, even filled the whole trench that was dug. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he began to pray. This is his prayer. He said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you are God and that you are turning their hearts back to you again. After his prayer, fire came down from heaven, burned up the sacrifice, burned up the wood, even the stones were consumed and the soil, and it licked up all the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell before God and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah commanded them to seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the Kishon Valley where they were destroyed. The minute the word of that started to spread, Ahab the king, as you can imagine, was furious. And his wife, Jezebel, was furious as well. And Jezebel vowed to take the life of Elijah. In chapter 19, verse 2, it says, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods deal with me ever so severely if by tomorrow you're not destroyed like the prophets of Baal were. Elijah was on this high moment seeing God move in this powerful, powerful way, and then all of a sudden he was scared to death. First, he's taunting. God moves in this powerful way. This one person says, I'm going to take your life, and he's scared to death. And he started to run. He ran 18 miles. It says he even outran a chariot. So he must have been fast. He was deeply afraid, running for his life, and then at the end of the day, completely worn out and scared from this, he wanted to just die, he said. Flashback over. Go back to Romans 11. 
That's the story that would be in people's minds. And Paul says, don't you remember what the scripture says about Elijah? How he appealed to the God of Israel. Because this is what Elijah said after that moment. He said, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me too. And what was God's answer to him? He said, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, who are faithful to me. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. Did God reject his people? No. Even Elijah found some who were still following God in that day. I'm sure Paul thought of the story of Elijah often. I think the Apostle Paul felt alone. Like Elijah, he probably felt alone. This is a great story for us as well. As followers of Jesus Christ in today's age, do you ever feel alone? Do you ever feel like no one else believes this? When you hear the news feeds and the, you watch the stories on TV and Netflix and everywhere else and you see the narrative, do you ever wonder anymore, does anyone believe the basic Christian faith? And then we see people who say they believe, but it doesn't look like it based on what they love. Have you ever felt alone as a Christian? God is encouraging us today, if we feel like that, to stay faithful as well. God is alive and well in many of his people. Verse 5 says there's this remnant. What is a remnant? A remnant is a small remaining quantity. There's a small remaining quantity of people who at that time were chosen by grace. Today we have more than a remnant around the world currently. But if Christianity ever shrinks down to a very small minority, and maybe in your world, in your neighborhood, in your job, in your family, that's happened. Christianity has shrunk to a small minority. Remember this. Never ever forget this. God does not need a majority. God does not need a majority. In fact, God actually seems to do more with a small remaining few than with a large majority. If many, many followers of Jesus turn their back and Christianity all but disappears, but there's a few people left, don't worry about it. Don't worry. God can do more with a few than what over one million human beings can do in their own strength. God did not reject his people. And Paul finishes out by saying, God did not reject them. They rejected God, so God hardened their hearts. Look at verses 6 to 7. They're chosen by grace, and if it was by grace, he returns back to his teaching from last chapter, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. They tried to obtain favor in God's eyes by doing good things. They couldn't do it. So they gave up and were hardened. The elect among them, however, did obtain it. But the others were hardened. And then he quotes three passages from the Old Testament. Again, soaked in the Old Testament. These are the people of Israel he's talking to. 
As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Their eyes could not see, their ears could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs bent forever. So there's a small remnant of Jewish people following Jesus. Then the question comes, well, if God was faithful as covenant, why wasn't there more than that? And Paul says, the elect, those God called, they were faithful. But the others were hardened in their hearts towards God. Some of the Jewish people continued their pattern of trying to earn God's favor in their own strength. They rejected Jesus, therefore they rejected grace, and they were hardened as a judgment for not believing in Jesus as Messiah. And God gave them over to their stubborn hearts. A couple weeks ago, Chris was talking about Pharaoh and how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now the people of Israel say, well, that we get, but God would harden the hearts of Israel, the people of the Jewish people as well. How could that be? And Paul says, what you're forgetting is some of them were not really God's people because their hearts became too hard. And he quotes those passages. Paul uses the Old Testament here because the Jewish people were very familiar with it. And basically what Paul is saying in those last verses is that it's a terrible judgment that some of the Jewish people will not be saved. However, this was brought onto these people by their own actions. They hardened their hearts towards the things of God. He's saying God displayed his love, his power, and his glory in many ways. And time after time, they turned their backs on God. So God gave them over to their stubborn hearts. God judged Israel in response to the rebellion of these. This should be a sober warning for us as well. No one is beyond the grace of God. However, we must have humble hearts turn towards God and persevere in relationship with Jesus until we see him face to face. Our hearts must be softened, humble, eager to hear and receive what God has. The principle Paul brings up here still applies today. If anyone hears the Bible, God's word preached over and over and over week after week after week, and they never respond to it. They never let it sink in. They never reflect on how it applies to their life, and they leave here and go do whatever they want. And they never, by God's grace, obey or turn their heart to his word. This tells us the heart then gets hardened to God's word. And eventually... If it's hardened over and over and over, that heart becomes incapable of responding to the word of God. And that's a scary place to be as a human being. As we come and we hear God's word taught week after week, as we encounter him in worship, it's imperative that we don't do that just like spectators at an event. It's imperative that we take what we're hearing and we listen and we reflect and we respond. That we cultivate humble hearts that hold God in awe and respect Him. 
that we let his words sink in, that we have a high view of God, that we truly believe this is God speaking to us, and we turn our hearts towards him to hear what he has to say. We have to cultivate hearts that say this, search me, O God. What a great prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. It's scary to think that there's some in churches all over the world who hear God's word preach week after week after week, but they never apply it. They never even think about it. They just go through the motions and come into a church service, let it hear in like a veneer, they wash it off and go do whatever they want. Jesus warned people like that. Jesus called people like that whitewashed tombs. Because he said they look all nice and pretty on the outside, but inside they're actually dead. Jesus had words of warning for people like that. He said this in Matthew 13, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. The Jewish leaders in Jesus' time could not understand what Jesus was saying. They missed God. And why? They knew the Bible better than anyone on the planet, but they never ever applied it. They never let it read them. They never let it sink down deep. They, never, they had no regard for it. It was just an exercise of mental capacity for them. If we do not keep a humble heart and just live in like this Christian culture and never let it sink in, we can become inoculated to the word of God. That's a scary place. Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in the Third Reich in World War II and led a seminary, said he had this habit. When seminary students would come in and preach, he'd hear sermon after sermon after sermon, and he was, stake, he was uh, gripped by Jesus' words, and he didn't want to let this harden his heart. And so he had this habit. He said he'd put his pen aside, he'd take his glasses off, he'd close his eyes, and he would listen intently letting the sermon drive deep into his heart. He didn't want to be those who hear God's word and never ever respond to it. He thought that practice would guard his heart. He didn't want to be hearing but not listening, exposed to God's word but never responding, hearing the Bible but never applying it to ourselves. Do you know one of the biggest signs where that is happening in our heart? Do you know it's like an indicator light on the dashboard of your life if you're starting to harden your heart towards God's word? One direction that will lead you towards hard-heartedness, towards the things of God, that starts with a real brief thought, it's if you're ever in church and you're hearing a message or you're ever listening to a podcast and you're hearing someone preach, and you hear something spoken and you say, you know what, so-and-so really needs to hear that message. That person that I'm thinking of really needs to hear that message. I wonder if there's some way I can get this message and get them to hear it because they need to hear 
that message. You know what? We all do that. Even myself. That's the first step towards hardening our hearts towards this book. One of the first steps. And so next time you're hearing a message and you think, so-and-so, let that be a warning and just stop and say, you know what? I need to hear this message. God, you have that person in your hands. I need to hear this message. Let that heart be cultivated and created to have a humble posture towards God's word. How do we take what we hear and apply it? It's so critically important that we don't let God become so familiar. And what I mean by that, just so routine or so casual that you lose the awe and wonder of who he is. It's so critically important. Never become so casual or routine about the cross. Never become so casual or routine about your Savior. Never become casual or routine about amazing grace. And if you sense that happening in your life, pause your life, carve out time, give God undivided attention and go back to him and ask forgiveness and ask him to soften your heart. Has God rejected the people of Israel? No. There has always been a group of the people of Israel following God and there always will be. And God will carry out his sovereign plan. But, as God's people... We need to stay tender towards God. We need to stay humble towards God. We need to stay brokenhearted towards God. And we need to be aware of God in our midst. And we need to let his word fill us with awe and wonder, even at times fear. It's high regard respect for who God is. Because he's worthy of all that.